Well, today, uh, you guys, we find ourselves at the halfway point, um, week four of our eight-week series on the parables of Jesus. Now, if you're just now joining us, or maybe you're unfamiliar with that term, a parable is a short story that illustrates a deep spiritual reality. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he used parables a lot for this purpose, for teaching his close followers, his disciples, what life in the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, remember, the kingdom of heaven is not uh, a physical plot of land, so to speak, with a castle and a moat. The kingdom of heaven is the redemptive rule of Christ over the hearts and lives of his followers, of his people. So if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, meaning you trust him for your salvation and you submit to him as king over your life, you're a Christian and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven right now and forever, hallelujah, because the kingdom of heaven is an eternal kingdom that will be fully realized when Jesus returns to gather his followers and and usher in the new creation. But with our, uh, with our kingdom citizenship right now comes a new way of living and being. And that is the entire point of Jesus' parables. To illustrate for us what life is like in the kingdom of heaven. What the Christian life ought to look like. So remember our first week of our series we looked at the parable of the treasure and the pearl. And we were reminded how, as Christians, our relationship with Jesus is the most precious thing in all the world. And we must be willing to give up anything and everything that keeps us from Jesus. Do we remember that? Week two, we looked at the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. We were reminded how, as Christians, we must forgive those who sin against us because we have been forgiven much by Jesus. Last week we looked at the parable of the workers in the vineyard and how in the kingdom of heaven no one ever gets what they truly deserve. And we looked at why this is really good news because instead of being punished for our disobedience toward God, which is what we deserve, we instead have received grace upon grace upon grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today... We'll be looking at the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. So if you brought your Bible or if you received a Bible from Miss Susan Grassy, would you please turn with me, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Now our passage this morning finds Jesus and his disciples in Jerusalem, having traveled west out of the region of Perea where we found him and his disciples last week. And upon entry into Jerusalem, we know this story, the, the great crowds, the huge crowds of Jews and Gentiles alike uh, gathered around Jesus. They laid their coats in the roadway. They were waving palm branches in the air, crying out, Hosanna, which means come and rescue us. And, and Jesus indeed was coming to rescue them, but not in the way they were anticipating. So 
in this passage, we find Jesus in the week of Passover in Jerusalem. The city is bursting at the seams. It's a time of year when the Jews celebrated God's rescue of them from the Egyptians in the days of Moses. We also find Jesus in this passage in the week of his betrayal and his crucifixion. And the parable of the talents, according to Matthew's telling of Jesus' story, is the last parable that Jesus would teach before his death. And it actually makes the, the subject matter of the parable all the more fitting. See, though Jesus will soon be crucified and three days later he would be raised and though he will you know, ascend back to heaven for a time, that is not the end of the story. And so like the, the parable of the ten virgins that precedes the parable of the talents, the parable of the talents is largely about being watchful and diligent and being prepared for Jesus' return. And so by God's grace, as we read this text now, I trust we will see how as Christians we ought to live in a posture of readiness for Christ's return, which includes using our God-given abilities and resources for the advancement of his kingdom until he does return. I trust that's what we're going to see here as we read. Let's read starting in verse 14, Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus to his disciples, and he's just talked about how the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. And again, it's about a readiness, it's about a preparedness for Jesus' return. And he continues that the kingdom of heaven, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability, then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. 
But his master, master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, give us ears to not only listen... Give us ears to hear what you're saying to us in your word this morning. Um, humble me and use me by your grace uh, to help my brothers and sisters as we explore this passage. Edify us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it goes without saying that this parable is... Two parts encouraging and one part sobering. Um, one master, three servants, seven total talents. Now, you might recall from a couple weeks ago that a talent, the literal of, 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 of the word talent, is, is, a, is a bag of gold. It was the largest currency, uh, it was the largest unit of currency that Israel had uh, in, in ancient Israel, it was worth about 20 years of wages. And the, the first servant in verse 15, we just read, is, is entrusted with five bags of his master's gold. Uh, it's 100 years of wages. The second servant is entrusted with two. And the, and the third servant is entrusted with one, each according to his ability. And then the master leaves. In verse 16, we see that the first servant, he, he wastes no time. He, he goes and he strategically lends the master's money in order to gain interest. Now, now Jews in this culture were prohibited from charging interest uh, to other Jews. But it was perfectly common and permissible to lend money to Gentiles, non-Jews. And, and because capital was often hard to find, excess money was often hard to find, they could usually charge a good amount of interest and, and make out quite well by simply lending money, which is exactly what we see the second servant do as well in verse 17. And both of them, the first and second servant, double, double the talents, the bags of gold, if you will, that had been entrusted to them. But in verse 18, we just saw it, we see the third servant who received the one talent, he he buries his master's money in the ground, which was, again, commonplace. Because, again, it's a, it's a culture without banks and without safety deposit boxes. So the, the disciples gathered around Jesus and the crowds that are listening wouldn't have been too thrown off by this concept. Where The story continues. We're told that a long time goes by and the master finally returns. And desiring to settle accounts, which each of them, he, he calls them. The first servant who was entrusted with five happily returns ten. And I love what the master says to him in verse 21. I just, I, well done, 
good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. It didn't sound like a little. It was a hundred years worth of wages. But I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He does the same with the second servant who'd been entrusted with the two who he happily returns four talents. And, and to this second servant, the master says in verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Now enter into the joy of your master. And then the third servant approaches with the one that he had been entrusted with. Only now it was likely covered in, in dirt and the, and the bag was you know, rotten and mildewy from being in the earth and buried all that time and handing the master this single talent, the servant says in 24, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. In other words, this is what the third servant said. Master, you're a hard man to please. And because you only care about results and production, even when results are not possible, uh, I was simply too afraid to do anything with what you entrusted to me, so I buried it out of sight and out of mind, and here you can, you can have it back now. You can have what's yours. And at first glance, we might feel as if the master's response in verse 26 is a bit harsh. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. The master's calling out the third servant. He's saying, if you truly believed that, that you were, you know, that I'm a results-driven, slave-driving master, well, wouldn't you, out of your own fear, gone and produced interest with what I lended you? See, the third servant didn't even believe what he was telling the master. We'll get into that. The master continues, for to everyone who has will more be given, and, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I said at the beginning, parables are short stories that illustrate deep spiritual Realities, And what we see here in verse 30 is that spiritual reality coming into view. Jesus doesn't describe sending the worker simply to another job, you know, firing him. He describes outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are deep spiritual implications to what Jesus is trying to illustrate for his disciples and us this morning. What this parable is in fact teaching us is that like the servants in this parable, as Christians, we ought to live our lives, church. We ought to conduct ourselves in a posture of 24-7 readiness for our master's return, for the return of Christ the King. And that means... 
using our God-given abilities and resources that he has entrusted to us to advance his kingdom while we await his return. The parable of the talents is, is, is showing us as Christians that we ought to operate in a position of preparedness for Christ's return using what he has gifted us with and we will get into what he's gifted each of us with in order to advance and expand and multiply what's his, his kingdom. And so for the remainder of our time we're going to consider three takeaways from this passage. Number one, like the servants in the parable, we have all been gifted by God with varying abilities and resources. All of us, each and every one of us here. Number two, we're going to look at, like the servants in the parable, we are called to use our gifts for the expansion of for the advancement of his kingdom. All of us, we're all called to do this. And number three, like the servants in the parable, we will only rightly use our gifts when we rightly understand God's character. Number one, like the servants in the parable, we have all been gifted by God with varying abilities and resources. According to God's grace, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, 6, he has given us different gifts, but he has given us all gifts nonetheless. Even non-Christians, even if you're here and you don't follow Christ, do you not possess varying abilities and resources? And the Apostle Paul would again ask, 1 Corinthians 12, what do you have that you did not ultimately receive? So even for you, non-believer, your skills and talents and abilities did not originate from within you. Michael Phelps did not give himself the perfect geometrical body shape for swimming. He didn't. Adele did not give herself perfect pitch and warm, raspy, buttery tone. I mean, you could argue that cigarettes did that, but like, no, like God did that. God did that. Your treasures, your possessions, those did not originate with you either. Bill Gates used a brain that he didn't form to develop abilities that he didn't originate in himself in order to earn money and, and accrue his possessions. Now all of us in this room have been born into an era. We were born into a culture that we did not choose for ourselves, into a family that, that we didn't pick, and, 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 and there were connections made for us there, connections that we did not make that led to maybe what kind of school we would go to if we went there or what kind of job or apprenticeship we would take. The point is, for everyone in this room, everything we have, our time, our health, our talent, our treasure, everything we have does not find its origin within us. It's been gifted and entrusted to us, the Bible tells us, by God. Now, for Christians, this goes even further. 
So for Christians, we not only possess natural, uh, you know, gifts, abilities, resources given to us by God, we possess supernatural gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who lives inside of us when we are united by faith with Christ. Romans 8, 11, the, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, he lives in, his, in us, in his followers, and the same Spirit that animated and empowered Jesus for life and ministry is the same Spirit that animates and empowers us for life and ministry. And there are all sorts of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to God's people, leadership and, and service and the gift of hospitality and administration, the gift of encouragement and wisdom and discernment, the gift to teach, the gift of knowledge and, and faith and prophecy and tongues and healing and the gift of giving, generosity, mercy and evangelism, right? There are some who are gifted to, to speak and there are some who are, are gifted to work with their hands and just amazing ways and so if the servants Christians are are called to use our gifts that we've been given and entrusted by God do you do you brothers and sisters know how you're gifted do we know what our gifts are do we know how God the Holy Spirit and with what he has entrusted us. And there's, there's kind of, a, if, you, if you've never thought about this before, there's, there's kind of an easy way to start tapping into what your gifting might be. Suppose that I come into a life crisis and suppose something, I lose a, a loved one and I am just absolutely aching. How would you try to serve me? What would be the first thing you would do to come to me and to try to minister to me? Would you bake me some cookies, cook me a meal? Would you open up scripture and try to teach me about the comfort that has been afforded to me in God's sovereignty? Would you pray? Would you, what would you do? This is a helpful uh, kind of getting our toes wet into the world of trying to discern how am I gifted? And often that aligns with what we would do for those when we want to minister to them. So our, our gifts aren't for boasting. They don't originate in us or with us. They don't belong to us. Because if we look at this parable rightly and we interpret it rightly, our gifts, our, our resources belong to the master. They've been entrusted to us according to our ability, that is, according to the capacity God has allowed us. According to God's varied grace, he's made us stewards of these gifts, just like the servants in the parable. And, number two, like the servants in the parable, we are all called to use our gifts for the expansion and the advancement of God's kingdom so when we observe this parable we interpret this parable Christians ought to act in a similar manner that the first two servants did we ought to waste no time using the gifts of our master that, that, that he has entrusted to us in order to increase what not, not bags of gold 
in order to increase his kingdom, his rule over hearts and lives and kingdom citizens. We, we do this when we employ our gifts to serve our spouses if you're married or your children if you have children or families and friends, co-workers and classmates, brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. First Peter 4.10, Peter writes, As God has given each of you a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. And so in, in the church, what, what, what this means directly for us in Substance Church and as Substance Church, if you have the gift of teaching, oh man, serve. Serve with the kids Serve in a CG. If you've been given the gift of hospitality, talk to Amy, Allen, or, or host a CG. If you're technically or musically gifted, well, we need help running sound. We need volunteers. So shameless self-promotion right there for that ministry. John Calvin once wrote that all the gifts we enjoy are divine deposits which we have received on this condition that we distribute them to others that we bless others with those gifts to the glory of God when we employ the gifts God has entrusted to us for the benefit of others we not only strengthen the body we glorify the Lord and this is supremely seen in every single believer's call to go and to make disciples. We spent a couple of months, a couple series ago, looking through 2 Timothy. It was a series called Passing the Torch in which we looked at and asked ourselves, who is your Timothy? Who in your life are you employing your giftedness to minister to them, to disciple them, to help them to love and follow and exemplify Christ? That is the most glorious end of our giftedness to the glory of God that we would use what he has entrusted us with to strengthen the walk of another believer. And that works for evangelism as well, which is the other side of the same coin of discipling, that we would go out and that we would employ our gifts for the good of our community, that the, cre the kingdom might increase in people seeing the love and power of Christ demonstrated and they would come to know and love Christ as their Savior and Lord. This also involves vocation as mission. Man, Ed Roche is not here, but that dude is a great engineer. And I thank God that he uses that gift that God has given him to advance the kingdom in his workplace by being the best engineer he possibly can. And it, this quote is not Martin Luther, but it's often accredited to him. And Martin Luther was said to say that the Christian shoemaker does not serve others, nor does he glorify Christ by simply putting tiny crosses on all of his shoes. 
The Christian shoemaker serves others and glorifies Christ by making the best shoes possible. This is where we get this idea of using our giftedness for the advancement of the kingdom in our various places of work or, or, or home. And so for the Christians in this room, we ought to be asking ourselves, am I serving Christ with what he has generously given me? Am I handling my master's resources faithfully and wisely? It doesn't matter what gifts you've been given. It doesn't matter if you've been given five talents or two. You're not going to be held accountable for stewarding my gifts. And I'm not going to be held accountable for stewarding, stewarding yours. Brothers and sisters, be faithful with what is in your hand right now. By God's grace. A buddy of mine uh, once tried to convince me that once he got the work promotion, man, if he could just get this promotion at work, it would free up all sorts of time for ministry, all sorts of money for missions. And I didn't really know what to tell him at the time, but I, but I kind of came up with something along the lines of, brother, just be faithful with what's in your pocket right now right now because you won't be held accountable for what might have been only the gifts and resources that the Lord entrusted to you already and the reward whether we have five talents or two we see in this passage the reward is the exact same supernatural joy the master says enter into the joy of your master. Do you hear the invitation this morning? That there is a never-ending, all-satisfying joy that can only be given to us from a never-ending, all-satisfying creator God. Do you believe? Church, do you believe that there is untold joy that awaits those of us who give ourselves and our gifts Back to the one who entrusted us with them in the first place to the edification of our brothers and sisters around us and to his glory. Do we believe that there is untold joy in serving one another like that? I'll just share autobiographically that too often I settle for counterfeit joy because I am too busy building a counterfeit kingdom of myself. See, when we become more concerned with expanding our career and house and retirement and, and furthering our education and comfort and security and our stuff, when we become more concerned with building our own and reinforcing our own kingdom than we are the kingdom of heaven, we have already fallen into perilous idolatry. It's the kind of idolatry that makes the, the church in Revelation lukewarm and, and God spits them out of his mouth. Point number three, like the servants in the parable, we will only rightly use our gifts. Hear me. The only way any of us will walk out of this room today hearing correctly 
and acting rightly, the only way we will rightly use our gifts is when we rightly understand God's character through the lens of the gospel. So in the, in the theology world, it's often said that right belief informs right practice. Orthodoxy yields orthopraxy. There's a bumper sticker for you. <laughs> but conversely, wrong belief produces wrong practice. Years ago, and I'm, I'm wrapping up, Years ago, Oprah Winfrey described the moment when she left mainline Christianity. She still considers herself to be a Christian, if, if you can believe that. But she was telling this story, and this is the transcript of what she said on live TV. I happened to be sitting in church in my late 20s, and I was going to this church where you had to get there at 8 a.m. in the morning or you couldn't find a seat, and a, and a very charismatic minister, and everybody was into the sermon, and this great minister was preaching about how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent, and, and, and God is everything. And then he said, and the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said, jealous and something struck me, Oprah says. I was like 27 or 28, and I was thinking, God is all? God is omnipresent, and yet God is also jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. No doubt. <laughs> Wrong belief produced wrong practice in Oprah. She walked away from her so-called mainline Christian faith because of a misperception of God's character. She wasn't even rightly dividing that verse. She didn't rightly understand it. There was a woman even on live TV who was trying to convince her otherwise, but Oprah, like the third servant, had already made up her mind about what she believed about the master, and then that allowed her to bury the treasure in the ground and build her own kingdom. Misperception of the master led the third servant to bury rather than multiply the gift, and he justified his slothful laziness, and he refused to honor the master. I've heard about this somewhere. I think it's in Romans 1 where by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. This was all of us before Christ enlightened our hearts. We all suppress the truth. For what can be plain about what can be known about God was made plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have all been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So those people are without excuse. For although the third servant knew God, knew the master, he didn't really know the master. He suppressed the truth and did not honor him as the master. And it is this ongoing, unrepentant, willful misperception of God that is what condemns the third servant. Because this ongoing, unrepentant, willful misperception of God is so offensive, it is eternally punishable. And this should be sobering 
to us. See, unlike the third servant in today's parable, the first two rightly understood the master's character. They rightly, they rightly knew the master was good, not harsh. He was not a slave driver who was only concerned with results. Before moving here to Worcester, I worked um, at, while I was doing a church planting residency, I worked as a graphic designer at a company called The Superior Group. And man, I, t I kid you not, I I've almost never seen this in my life where so many employees wanted to please their boss so much because he treated them so well. And I can't help but think of that instance when I see these first two servants. God was faithful. The master was faithful to them and it proved fruitful in their lives. Church, recall these last parables that we've been walking through. Recall the gospel message that we have been reminding ourselves of every week in our liturgy and songs and in our sermon and everything. That he who knew no sin, this God, perfect and holy and righteous and blameless, he looked upon our helpless, sinless state and he did not leave us in it. He entered down into our exile. And he bore our sin and took it to a cross that we deserve to die on. And he died as our substitute in our place, rose again, calls us to faith, to simply trust that we cannot save ourselves, but the blood of Jesus can. This is a good master. What other, what other religious system in all the world speaks of a God who enters into the mess to save the people rather than demanding that the people pick themselves up by the bootstraps? The master is good. He is good. And brothers and sisters, he has gifted each and every one of you who by faith are united with Christ supernaturally and we are to, to our joy, serve one another in this church family and in our homes and in our workplaces if we latch on to the same truth that the first two servants did in this parable Worcester would change by God's grace and so I pray that that is what we see church by God's grace for the great joy that is set before us we get to live in a posture of readiness for Christ's return. And in the meantime, use our God-given abilities and our resources for the advancement of his kingdom, discipling one another and helping one another to love and follow and to exemplify Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that somehow, by your miraculous grace, my brothers and sisters here would be stirred to seek out how they have been uniquely gifted and to then employ those gifts for the blessing and the benefit of those on either side of them where they sit and those in their homes and those in their workplaces. 
oh God, let us be a church that does not bury that which we have received. But Lord, let us be a church who goes out into the, all the world, into all of Worcester, making disciples, teaching them to obey what you've commanded. Oh Lord, for our joy and your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.